Amen. Let's bow and pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today as a group of both sinners and sufferers. Uh, we come with our, our weaknesses and our failures and our sins, trusting that your blood atones for every sin, that our hope is found in you, that salvation and mercy and grace flowed from your hands and your side at the cross. Lord, we come to you as sufferers as well, burdened with pain, with grief, with sorrow. Some of us dealing with that at the personal level or at the family level, and others just dealing with the grief and the sorrow of what's going on in our world, a world where children die and where evil still exists. But Lord, we come to you knowing that in Christ, in, in you, Jesus, we have enough and we have hope. We have hope for the future and we have peace today. So we come to you with our needs, with our weakness, trusting your grace is sufficient. Lord, you know the needs not only of our hearts, you know the needs of this church, you know what it is that we need to hear today. And you've given us a book. So I pray that as we look to your word that you'd meet our need, that your spirit would open our eyes, and that you'd minister to us, that you would correct our perspective, that you would shape our priorities. We ask that you would convict us of sin, unbelief, foolishness. We ask that you would encourage us and strengthen our faith and comfort us with your promises. Lord, your word is our food today, so feed us well, we pray in your name. Amen. I want to welcome you this morning to Redemption Hill. It's good to see all of you here. I want to invite you to open to Revelation chapter 2. We've been going through the letters to the seven churches, and today brings us to the letter to Thyatira. I think one of the, uh, the questions that many of us both ask and answer on in, in any given week has a lot to do with what we do for a living. Maybe if you're meeting a new person, it's, you find out their name, and then what do you ask them? Well, what do you do? What do you do for work? What do you do for a living? Uh, and if you do know somebody well, you know, maybe I see a, a close friend here at church, one of the first things we may ask each other is, how was your week? How was work this week? It's just a natural point of conversation for many of us, and it makes a lot of sense. Uh, most of us spend a lot of time every week at work or doing work. It's how we spend our time and our effort. And what somebody does for a living, when you're, when you're meeting somebody, you ask them what they do, it tells you a lot about them. It tells you a lot about their various skills, uh, knowledge they may have. Uh, tells, it tells you about their past experience and training or, or perhaps education. It even might tell you a lot about their personality. Oh, you're an engineer. Okay. Now you know a little bit about how their brain works, right? Um, oh, wow, you're a school teacher. You spend a lot of time with other people's kids. I could never do what you do. Or you might say, wow, you're a nurse or a firefighter. Thank you for how you help other people. Uh, your job is a big piece of your life. And because of that, it's very easy for us to find our identity in what we do. You might be tempted, even as a Christian, to start feeling and start believing that what you do defines who you are. That that's some sort of measure of your worth and your contribution to the world. And so because of that, for every occupation, no matter what you may do for a living, there will be unique temptations. There will be unique pressures that come upon you. And it was no different for the first century believers in the city of Thyatira. Their occupation, whatever they found themselves doing for a living, came with some significant pressures and temptations. This city was much less significant in terms of um, political influence um, and even religious influence than many other cities in the region. It's not like Ephesus or Pergamum. It didn't have all these famous temples and these famous altars like we've been talking about in the other cities. But Jesus is no less interested and no less concerned with what's going on in Thyatira. This city was originally founded by the successor to Alexander the Great, and it was originally founded as uh, a military outpost. It was strategic in terms of the roadways in the region, and so it was a fort. It was a military outpost, and it was somewhat of a ping-pong ball that got bounced around during all these different wars, and his empires shifted and came and went. But as the Roman Empire settled things down, and the Pax Romana became the rule of the day, there's this great sort of peace because of Roman power, 
the defining feature of Thyatira somewhat settled down, and it shifted from being a place of warfare, a military outpost, to becoming a great center of business. And what made this city unique was the presence of these various labor guilds. These guilds were like what we might know today as labor unions. Thyatira was famous for business, famous for various trades that were centered there. Uh, They were famous for the production of dyed linens and wools, the production of various leather goods, even shoes. Uh, Famous for their bronze workers, for their potters, those who made uh, pots and and different vessels out of clay. Famous for their bakers. So it's interesting, in Acts chapter 16, there's a, a famous woman named Lydia who's converted. She's mentioned there in Acts chapter 16, and it's pointed out that Lydia is from this city, from Thyatira, and that she was a seller of purple goods. Uh, Thyatira was famous for this specific color. There was a a root there that they extracted this pigment from and they dyed things purple. And so it's kind of interesting, you ask, you know, as you're reading the book of Acts, and we're introduced to Lydia, that she was converted to following Jesus. She had been a God-fearer. She believed in the God of the Old Testament, believed in the Jewish scriptures, and when the apostles came along and said, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that, she, she latched onto it, she believed. And we're told that she was a seller of purple. So why do, you, why do we think that Luke, the author of Acts, pulled out that, that detail? Well, it's kind of interesting. Lydia was likely a representative of her guild, a representative of her labor union, and she was doing business in Philippi, far away from Thyatira. And what she did for a living was a big piece of who she was, where she was from, what her whole life would have been about. So the question becomes, why would this city, why would big business in Thyatira pose some sort of challenge to the church? As we study the history of this, we come to understand that each of these guilds, these labor unions, they all had a patron deity. They sort of had their own personal mascot god. So if you were a bronze worker, you worshipped one god. If you were a seller of purple goods, you had another god. They all had their different mascots, a god that they worshipped. And while the city itself didn't have any major temples, any major religious focus, they sort of loosely worshipped Apollo, the sun god. But these guilds really were religious in nature. Belonging to the guild meant regular festivals, regular rituals to their patron deity. And these rituals involved meat sacrifice to idols, and engaging in sexual immorality. Their rituals were corrupt pagan festivals. And so if you didn't participate, if you said, well, I can't participate in that, you risked losing your membership in the guild. You, it would have become nearly impossible for you to get a job, nearly impossible for you to do business in the city if you decided to you know, strike out on your own. So the question became for those Christians, did they love their job more than they loved Jesus? We could ask the question today, is financial pressure for you, Christian, is financial pressure enough to cause you to compromise? This is the challenge that the believers there were facing. And as always happens, funny story, in every age of the church, Someone came along who told them not to worry about it. Somebody came along who told them, listen, you can worship God, you can be a follower of Jesus, and you can also participate in your guild and in pagan worship and things like that. Someone came along who was preaching and teaching that holiness and purity and being distinct from the world was not really essential for followers of Jesus. And the church at Thyatira took Debate. I want you to look with me, Acts or Revelation, rather, chapter 2. Our text is verse 18 through 29. Let's read it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The key issue in the church at Thyatira, just like we saw last week with the church at Pergamum, is compromise. The problem there was doctrinal and moral compromise. They have tolerated false teaching. They've bought into it and followed this prominent individual into sin. So what can we learn today as a church here in Douglas County about the deadly danger of compromise? Well, I think we can learn a lot from this passage. What I want to do this morning is identify three principles that speak to us today. Principles that we need to understand and embrace if we're going to avoid the critical failures of Thyatira. The first principle is what we find in verse 18. Number one, that those who compromise are in rebellion against the glorious Christ. That's why it's such a big deal. Those who compromise doctrinally, those who compromise morally, are in rebellion against not just a rule, and not just a law, not just a principle, but against the resurrected Christ. Verse 18, we see the address to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Thyatira right. The words of who? The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. If you're studying this passage, if you're reading Revelation, I mean, we're, we're several churches deep now into this list, and it may be easy to sort of skip past these opening descriptions of Jesus because maybe you want to jump right into the heart of the letter. You want to figure out what the problem is. You're going Jezebel, deep things of Satan, morning star. Okay, we got to figure that stuff out, right? We're curious about that. But it's important that we start with this all-important opening address because every time we get these little snippets at the beginning of these letters, they all follow this pattern. It's a reference back to the vision that the Apostle John saw in chapter 1. And we looked at that in detail a number of weeks ago. The church needs to know. The church needs to remember who it is that is speaking to them. And that these words come to them with absolute authority. Absolute authority. The words of who, according to verse 18? The Son of God. These are the words of the Son of God. It's not just the words of John. It's the words of Christ. And obviously this speaks, this title, the Son of God, speaks to the divinity of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you believe in Jesus, then you are a Son of God or a daughter of God. But only Jesus is the Son of God. Only Jesus is one with the Father. Only Jesus is co-equal in glory. It was claiming to be the Son of God that got Jesus killed because people knew what it meant when he claimed to be the Son of God. John chapter 5, 18 says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which made a lot of people angry, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's what it means for Jesus to be the son of God. It's a statement of his divinity. But it means more than that. It's more than just simply saying Jesus is God. This is a title that radiates authority. It's a title that communicates kingship. 
kingship. The Old Testament text, Psalm 2, speaks of the Messiah, this anointed one, as God's son and confirms that he has absolute authority. Listen to what Psalm 2 says. Psalm 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You read Psalm 2 and you get this understanding of what it means that the Son of God is the anointed king, that the Son of God will judge the nations, that the Son of God demands our submission and our reverence. He offers salvation to those who bow the knee, but those who reject him are destined for judgment. That's the background of this term, the Son of God of God. Jesus is the messianic king, the one who's been given all authority by his father. That's what it means to be the son of God. It's interesting, this is the only time this title is used in the entire book of Revelation. Often he's called the son of man, echoing back to to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, but only here is he called the son of God. The church at Thyatira needs to see him as the divine judge who possesses all authority, the one who's been given this authority by the Father. So how is the Son of God described? We'll look at the text. Verse uh, 18 says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. Again, this is sort of recapping something we already saw in chapter 1, verse 14. This Dramatic imagery tells us that Jesus, this anointed king who has all authority to judge, that he sees all. He sees everything. And what he sees will be judged. It will be judged in righteousness. This idea of fire could, can even communicate the concept of, you know, passing something through the fire means that everything impure burns up. And only what is pure, only what is precious remains. Jesus sees and he judges with perfect righteousness and justice. And no matter how good we may look on the inside, no matter how good we may see ourselves to be, it's the penetrating gaze of Jesus Christ that burns deep into the center of our souls and exposes every thought and every motive and every fear and every desire. That's how Jesus sees, with eyes of flaming fire. And nobody wins the stare down with Jesus. If you think you're going to come back at him and make some sort of argument, you're going to lose. He has eyes of flaming fire. He secondly described here as having feet like burnished bronze. Again, this would have gotten the attention of the bronze workers at Thyatira who did that sort of thing for a living. Feet like burnished bronze. This speaks to the purity and the holiness of Christ. Highly polished bronze was reflective, radiant even, reflecting the light. And perhaps this even points us to how Jesus is going to stamp out impurity and wickedness in the final judgment. Later on in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, as Jesus is returning, it says that he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. There's something about his feet that communicates judgment when he shows up. A perfectly holy and righteous judgment. So this stunning description of the majesty and the glory of Christ, this has been a theme for us. It's a theme back in chapter 1 and in every letter that we find here in these first few chapters. And so for a church that feared the power of the guilds, for a church that was impressed by false teachers and their claims, they needed this. They needed to have their fears and their sense of awe redirected and recalibrated so that they could be protected from spiritual compromise. For a church that was tempted to water down the necessity of holiness, the necessity of purity, they needed to remember the reality of Jesus' judgment so that they could be kept from moral compromise. 
The first principle is that those who compromise are in rebellion against the glorious Christ. Secondly, those who compromise, and this flows from the first point, those who compromise will experience the judgment of Christ. They will experience the judgment of Christ. That's verses 19 through 23. Now, this church was doing a lot right. We can see it in verse 19. It says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed, exceed the first. They're doing a lot of things well. They haven't lost their first love. Uh, they are trusting and believing in Christ. They are faithful. They are, they are faithful in terms of service. The word service here is the same word we, uh, that we get our term deacon from. It has the idea of ministry. So, so not just serving God, but even ministry to one another. This is an active church. It's a busy church that's doing a lot of good things. It says, I know your perseverance. Things are hard. You guys haven't quit yet. And unlike the church at Ephesus, they're increasing, not slowing down. Their latter works exceed the first, so they started well, and now they're doing even better in all of those specific areas. And all of that is great. All of that is essential. But there's still a big problem. There's this little word, but, in verse 20. In spite of everything that's going well, he says, but I have this against you. I have this against you. What's the issue? It's compromise. Verse 20 says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, like several of the other letters, once again here, there's an Old Testament figure, an Old Testament name that's brought out of the past. And it's brought out of the past, and it carries a lot of flavor with it. It carries a whole backstory with it. And Jesus is using this term to help them see the nature of what's going on right then and there in their church. Jezebel is this infamous character from the Old Testament, a Phoenician queen, a Gentile queen who was married to an Israelite king named Ahab. He brought her in. It was a political alliance. It brought a lot of benefits um, in terms of foreign relations for this marriage to happen. But this woman, Jezebel, systematically introduced Baal worship into uh, Israelite culture and custom. Uh, I say systematically. This wasn't just something that happened naturally. It was programmatic. She had all of these prophets that she employed and fed and, and deployed in order to organize Baal worship in Israel. She became a major source of persecution, killing many of God's prophets. And she famously went head-to-head -head with the prophet Elijah. You can read about that in 1 Kings. Now, this woman Jezebel eventually died this ugly and shocking death. She's thrown out of a window and run over by a chariot on purpose. It's a shameful death. And she was given no honor, no burial. She was actually eaten by the dogs that roamed the street and cleaned up the garbage to symbolize that that's what she was. She was vile and corrupt in a spiritual sense. So that she is an infamous character from the Old Testament. It's no surprise that you won't find Jezebel on like those top 20 baby names of 2021, 2022, um, it's like Judas, Jezebel, you know, some of those names, you're just not going to find them because there's a history there, right? And we know that history. It's a negative word. That name carries that. And so this Old Testament figure, Jezebel, Jesus uses that name and links it to a woman in the church at Thyatira. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. This woman was a false prophet. And the teaching that she was spreading said that believers could participate in, in pagan worship, that they could follow Jesus and engage in all of the sinful behavior that was associated with idolatry. The problem with her was this compromise. It was a doctrinal compromise that led to moral compromise. And just so you know, that's how it always happens. Doctrinal compromise always leads to moral compromise. Satan has a game plan. He wants to take us through this downward progression where we compromise the truth of Scripture, which leads us to compromise how we live, which leads to spiritual devastation. And that's what was going on in this church. 
She claimed to speak to God, to speak for God, but she was actually an imposter. I love how, how it says here that she calls herself a prophetess. It doesn't say she is. She calls herself one. She's self-appointed. And Jesus is not pleased. He's not pleased by this title she has claimed for herself, and he's not pleased by what she's teaching, and he's definitely not pleased by what she's doing, seducing others to join her in her sinful behavior. And so Jesus calls her Jezebel. You might say, wow, that's a little harsh, isn't it? Isn't that the wrong tone? Shouldn't we be more gracious? This sounds really judgmental. I mean, try that this week. Call somebody Jezebel. See what that gets you. Um, Some of us might be a little shocked by the fact that Jesus would say that. But is Jesus wrong? If you think that Christ is being judgmental here, if you think his tone is wrong or that he's being too harsh, then you try telling him that. Try looking at the one who has eyes like flaming fire and say, I think you're out of line and you're being too harsh. No, what she is doing deserves to be called out like this. And what's amazing here in verse 21 is that her character is so corrupt that when she's given time to repent, she refuses. Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. There's been opportunity to her, for her to, to renounce her, her false claims to be a prophet, to recant her doctrinal uh, claims that were heretical, and to repent of her sinful behavior. He gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. This is a hard-hearted, spiritually corrupt false teacher, which is why it makes it so shocking that the church, that Thyatira was tolerating her. They were allowing her to remain among them. They were giving her recognition platforming her, you could say, listening to her as a prophet. And the church, therefore, had become doctrinally and morally compromised along with her. So what are the consequences for this? Verse 22 through 23 says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. A sickbed for Jezebel. That's what she is going to get. This is not a warning of what might happen. This is a verdict. Things have gone too far, and Jesus is saying, this is what now must happen, what will happen. And the ironic judgment of Christ for this woman is that the place of her sin as an adulteress is going to now become the place of her suffering. She's going to be afflicted with illness. Christ is going to judge her. She will be thrown, this is a violent word, cast onto a sickbed. That's the consequence for Jezebel. There's a second group here. Not only will he throw Jezebel onto a sick bed, but secondly, he says, those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. This phrase, those who commit adultery with her, I think, is best understood not as directly sinning with her, not face to face with her and that kind of adultery, but joining in the same kind of sin that she participates in, joining in what she advocates. So they're sinning along with her in the same way. However, notice that there's grace here. Although those who are are participants in her sin are threatened with tribulation, they're threatened with affliction, threatened with adversity that's going to come as a consequence for their sin, there's a conditional clause here unless they repent. There's actually grace. There's still time for them. This judgment is conditional. This appears to be discipline for true believers who have been seduced by her teaching and who have at this point failed to deal with her error. But they're no longer as far gone as she is. Judgment is coming for her. There's still a chance for them. If they will repent, if they will turn, they can actually escape this tribulation that is coming. There's a third consequence. Not only is there tribulation for those who commit adultery with her, but the opening words of verse 23 simply say, and I will strike her children dead. And again, I don't think this right here would be a literal description of her offspring, but would rather be a description of her committed followers. 
children of Jezebel would be those who had fully bought in, totally bought into her system, her teachings, and her way of life. So this isn't just people who have sort of failed by being passive. They've not dealt with her the way they should. No, these are the people that are all the way in, fully committed. This is judgment. It's a judgment of death. Death for those who defiantly claim that what she is saying is true. Those who defiantly insist on their rights to keep engaging in those sinful behaviors. Jesus says, very simply, I will kill or I will strike her children dead. Literally, I will kill them with death. This is also likely a reference to some sort of sickness or um, or, or disease. She's being thrown onto her sickbed and her children as well will, will be plagued with this judgment and it will lead to their death. And this judgment is meant to be a wake-up call for the church. It says, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. This is supposed to be a wake-up call for the church. People are going to die. People are going to die. False doctrine and immorality is deadly serious. The one who has eyes of flaming fire searches the mind and the heart, and he judges with perfect justice, and all the churches need to know. And that's why Christ announces these consequences for their sin. I want to clarify here. Does this mean that every church will experience sickness if they compromise? Does this mean that followers of false teaching will always lose their lives due to Christ's immediate judgment? No. Jesus isn't saying this will always happen in every church exactly this way. It happened this way for Thyatira, yes. And it happened this way in Corinth, another church, for those who took the Lord's Supper improperly. Paul writes, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So sometimes Jesus will use physical suffering and even death to purify and to discipline his church. But it doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes judgment is withheld until the last day. We can look around our world today and we can see churches that teach false doctrine, churches that affirm immorality that seem to be thriving. Nobody's dying. They have lots of money. They have uh, world-famous churches and publish all these books. So Jesus doesn't always act like this in an immediate sense, but every church will experience the judgment of Christ on the last day. Every church will experience the discipline of Christ in this day if we compromise. It may look like sickness. It may look like something else. But the point is Jesus sees, and he will deal with compromise. That's the point. And the church needs to know that. So this is a pretty severe little passage here. We have being thrown onto a sickbed, tribulation, and death. But I also want us to see that there's grace woven throughout even this text. There's grace here because there's still time to repent. He gave Jezebel a chance, didn't he? Even this false teacher had time. Even she, at one point in time, if she would have had a broken heart, if she would have humbled herself, she could have been restored. He's giving right now a chance to, to, the, to those who are participating with her. They've been seduced, but Jesus is calling them back to the light. He's saying, if you repent, you can escape the tr- this tribulation, this affliction that I'm going to pour out on your church. Listen, he's giving perhaps some of us today a chance. When Christ calls for repentance, There's a warning there. There is is a sober reality of judgment that is coming, but there's also grace. There's grace in the invitation to turn from sin. If you don't fear Christ today and you fear something else, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ today because you trust in yourself, if you are living a life that is committed to ongoing sin and you're not willing to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, today God offers you grace in the sense that he's giving you a chance to repent. Today is the day. There's a warning in that. Don't put it off any longer because that window of opportunity won't always be open. Eventually, that door will close. And at that point, it's too late. 
At that point, you will not be able to look to Jesus as Savior because he will be arriving in that moment as the judge. Those who compromise are in rebellion against the glorious Christ. Those who compromise, secondly, will experience the judgment of Christ. But third, those who hold fast will experience glory with Christ. Those who hold fast will experience glory with Christ. In all of these letters to the churches, there's these warnings and there's this announcement of judgment and consequences, but there's also hope. There's a promise of encouragement that tells us it's worth it to persevere. So he speaks here in verse 24 to the rest of you. For the rest of you in Thyatira. The rest of you indicates that there's still some in the church who are not under God's discipline. There are still some in the church who are not in danger of judgment. Jesus acknowledges that not everyone has committed spiritual adultery against Christ through this compromise of worshiping other gods. Not everyone has committed literal adultery by going into these pagan feasts and engaging in their wicked practices. Not everyone is a child of Jezebel. He says, for the rest who do not hold to this teaching, so there's no doctrinal compromise, he says they have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Uh, What does this phrase mean? I think sort of ironically pointing out that this woman claimed to be a prophetess and to be speaking for God, to be revealing these deep truths that you couldn't get from the Bible, these deep truths that you couldn't get from Paul or from Peter or from the Apostle John, these deep truths that she had a special access to. But her supposed insights were actually satanic deceptions. All false teaching is deception. All false teaching is really empowered by Satan. It's not from God. This woman claimed that you could explore all the depths of pagan sin and then somehow emerge unscathed. That maybe even there was something beneficial for Christians in in engaging all of that. But Jesus says, I know that there's some of you there who've not been sucked into her teaching. You've not learned the deep things of Satan and followed this woman. To these people, what does Jesus say? He says, to you, I do not lay on you any other burden right there at the end of verse 24. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast. This is reminiscent of Paul's simple exhortation to the Romans. Romans 12, 9, he tells those believers, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Sometimes it's really that simple. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hate it, pull away from it, have nothing to do with it, and hold fast instead to what is good. Simply hold fast what you have until I come. Their works of love and faith and service and perseverance, those things have not been polluted by compromise. And Jesus simply wants them to keep it up, to keep on, to endure, to hold the line, to continue on as they have with no compromise. And if they do, if they can do that, Jesus encourages them with two remarkable promises. Let's look at those together. Verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 26, the one who conquers, the one who perseveres in this, the one who believes in Christ and and maintains that faith until the end and refuses to compromise and, and fall away, says the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give, first of all, authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. To those who hold fast to the end, Jesus says we will share in his glorious authority. Have you ever thought about that? We often think about heaven is no more sadness, which is wonderful. There's no more dealing with our own sin, which is going to be amazing. There's perfect rest. There's no more suffering. But have you thought about the fact that Jesus actually promises to share his glorious authority with his saints? We're almost afraid to even imagine that, to put ourselves up at that level. But this is what Jesus promises. Yeah, if you try to put yourself 
If you try to exalt yourself, Jesus says, I will humble you. But everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And that exaltation includes reigning with Christ. Here we find a quote in this passage from Psalm 2. That he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Again, this this is a quote of Psalm 2. That's what the Messiah will do. And Jesus says, you're going to be right there with me. There's an ancient tradition that when one nation conquered another, they would often inscribe the name of that nation onto a clay pot. And then the king of the conquering nation would symbolically smash that pot to symbolize their complete and total victory over their enemy. Again, there's people who belong to the potter's guild in Thyatira, people who make clay pots. And Jesus says, listen, if you overcome, you're going to have victory over the nations. You're going to be smashing pots. I'm going to share my authority with you. The Father gives His authority to the Son, and the Son then shares that authority with His saints. We find this in in the letter to Laodicea as well. Revelation 3.21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. That's an amazing truth. Revelation 26, 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. In this future kingdom that is to come, Jesus has administration, and he includes his saints in his rule over the nations. 2 Timothy 2.11 says, The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. This is a promise we find sprinkled all throughout the scriptures. Why is that such an encouraging promise? It's for this reason. Christian, believer, is it worth it to you to lose your place, to lose your prominence, to lose influence in this world? maybe even in your workplace? Is it worth it to lose the opportunity for advancement? Is it worth it to lose the opportunity for financial gain for the sake of Christ? Is it worth it to you to lose respect and honor and position of place, perhaps even in the broader Christian community? I mean, think about it. In the church of Thyatira, Jezebel's teaching was accepted as the standard. So those who didn't buy in would have been the minority in their own church. They would have been considered uh, outcasts or adversaries within their own spiritual community. Is it worth it to go through all of that? This text says yes. It is. It is. Faithful believers in Thyatira would have been outcasts in the world and in their own church. But Jesus says they are destined to share in his glory. It's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus promises to him who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. It's amazing. Secondly, in verse 28, he says, and I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. Not only will they share in Christ's glorious authority, they will receive something better than membership in the guild something better than acceptance even in their own church community. They will receive Christ himself. Revelation 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. When Jesus says, I will give them the morning star, he says, I'm going to give you myself. We get Christ. Christ would be theirs through faith. Jesus is their hope. Jesus is their reward. Jesus is their portion. Jesus is their inheritance. That's why Martin Luther wrote in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress, Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And in his kingdom, we receive Christ. We can lose everything in this world 
if we have Jesus. In Christ, we come to experience resurrection and we share in eternal life. We share in his glory. 2 Peter 1.19 says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's even better than prophecy and revelation to have scripture. It says, we have this prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns, referring to the return of Christ, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter describes the return of Christ as the morning star rising in our hearts. That as Jesus returns, we experience resurrection life. We experience something in him and with him that is deep inside of us. And this has a profound effect on who we are. Daniel 12, 2 says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. So we receive Christ. His life is in us. The morning star rises in us. And Scripture says we ourselves will shine like stars forever and ever. Jesus says, the one who overcomes, I will give him the morning star. Listen, friends, if that's true, if that's actually going to happen, that means we can be unimpressive here. It means that we can be scorned here. We can be outsiders here, sure. We can be the minority. We can be poor we can lose our jobs. We can be outcasts, whatever it may be. That's all fine because it's worth it to reign with Christ. It's worth it to have Christ and to share in his glorious life. So verse 29 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I hope we're listening this morning. I hope we're hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This text is meant to instruct us and to warn us and to encourage us. I want to give you three very brief points of application as we conclude. Number one, we as a church, in light of this text, need to beware the temptations that come from economic pressure. It's a real thing. We need to beware of the temptations that come from economic pressure. If we fear God and not man, if we trust God and not the dollar, then we will avoid those temptations. But we need to be on guard against that. It's something that Satan wants to use. Secondly, we need to beware the danger of those who claim to speak for God but are false prophets. Jezebel wasn't the first to do this, and she's not the last. It happens today. God's word needs to be the standard we use to test any and every teaching, any and every teacher. When we set scripture aside in favor of some secret insight that somebody claims to have or some powerful experience that they share with us uh, and they claim to have these spiritual truths, we need to be very, very careful. This is how nearly every cult is founded. Somebody shows up and claims to speak for God. Somebody shows up and claims to have some profound experience that needs to affect the way you live and what you believe. That's how cult leaders operate. This is how nearly every cult is founded, and it's how countless heresies are birthed. People begin looking outside of Scripture for truth, guidance, and direction. In every age, this has been a danger for the church, so we need to beware the danger of those who, like this woman at Thyatira, claim to speak for God, but they are false prophets. And then third and finally, behold the glory of Christ and be renewed in your resolve to hold fast. If you could take that away with you today. I think that'd be a wonderful way for us to respond in faith and obedience to this text. Behold the glory of Christ. Put your eyes on Jesus. And be renewed, therefore, in your resolve to hold fast. Hold fast. I think if Jesus were to show up here and to look at this church, I think that he would see in many of you faith and love and service or, or ministry. I think he would see perseverance. 
I think he would see that as of today in this church, we are not tolerating false teaching. We're not permitting and, and sanctioning ongoing immorality in this church. We do our best to deal with those things. So what would Jesus say to us today? Hold fast. Hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast, as 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, to the traditions that you've been taught, the apostolic traditions as they're recorded in Scripture. Hold fast to the Word. Hold fast, as Colossians 2.19 says, to Christ, who is the head and our source of life. Don't ever turn away from Him. Endure to the end, as Matthew 24 says, there will be many false teachers who lead many astray, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think Jesus would say to this church, you guys are doing a lot well right now, which is wonderful. You haven't compromised, but make sure that doesn't change. Hold fast what you have until I come. I love seeing what God is doing in this church. I think there's a lot to celebrate right now, but let's commit to these simple things over the long haul, to love and faith and service and perseverance. Let's hold fast to Christ. And when sin is exposed, let's be quick to repent, to lay hold of the grace and the mercy that Christ offers. And let's preach that message to others who need to hear it, that there's still time. There's still time to turn and bow the knee to Christ. And if you do, there is eternity and glory to be gained. Let's pray. God, I want to praise you and acknowledge your grace at work in this congregation. It would take too long to go through and, and list all the examples of love and faith and ministry and perseverance that I've personally had a chance to just observe in this church. Lord, I thank you for that. That's evidence of your grace at work in many people here. Lord, I thank you for the, the current state of doctrinal purity um, that is in this church. I pray that you would help us to maintain that. Lord, keep us uh, on guard against false teaching. Help us to be discerning and to never lower the standard, to never compromise, whether the pressure comes from the outside, whether it's economic pressure, or whether the pressure comes from the inside, if there's an influential person who starts leading people astray and seducing them with false teaching, God, help us to have the conviction and the courage to obediently hold fast to the standard that you've already given us in your word. Lord, I thank you for the gracious promise you give us of glory with you forever. May we have faith today to believe that it's worth it, to embrace being considered as outcasts, to being the scorned uh, scum of society if, if need be, because we have Christ as our inheritance. Christ is our reward. Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray that you'd save sinners in our midst, that you'd purify our hearts, and preserve us until the day when you return. Amen.